Welcome to Digital Gonzo, number 50, Gonzo Planet Audio Magazine, Volume 1. Originally, when I started Digital Gonzo, I had no idea where it was going and whether or not it would remain simply audio articles, so I never numbered them as shows. Losing Digital Cowboys and the episode count that was north of 200 was pretty harsh for me since I took such pride in the long body of work at my back. A few weeks ago, when I was finalising the Gonzo Planet website, I went back and retroactively applied numbers to each of the Digital Gonzo shows that had been released to date. It turned out I was already in the mid-40s, and I have a feeling that this series is going to endure. So let's proceed with the numbered episodic nature now, with a view to collecting a library of quality podcasts in a variety of formats. So to celebrate the 50th instalment, here is a new kind of show. It's a means of collecting and showcasing all of the audio articles from the first six weeks of Gonzo Planet, each submitted by a member of the Freelancers Guild. Now, the whole point of the website is to go and check these out yourself on day of release, but for those of you who haven't yet, or if you missed a few, or if you just read them in the case of the ones which offer both audio and text, here is a fine collection of fascinating opinions, all delivered in the compelling tones of the original author. Interspersing these articles will be an ongoing discussion about what's been on Gonzo Planet so far, between myself and three members of the Freelancers Guild, all of whom have audio articles in this omnibus edition. First up, we have my eternally patient wife and occasional guest on Digital Cowboys and Gonzo, Sharon Shaw. Hello. From the fantastic Canem Rince, it's longtime DC community linchpin, Mr. Joshua Combine Hunter Garrity. Hello there. And finally, producer and lead host of Gamerdork Rerolled, the co-hosting ranks of which I was recently recruited to, and sometime one half of some of the podcast, Miss Leah Haydu. Hi. Okay, we're going to start off with my review of Vanquish, which started out as text, evolved into audio, and then begged to be made into a video. This was originally going to be a launch piece for the Uncharted Kingdom. So let's go ahead with this right now, and we'll be back in just a bit. There's a moment in the 2007 live-action Transformers movie when Josh Duhamel's Captain William Lennox, in a desperate attempt to fell the rampaging Decepticon Blackout, gets on a motorbike and races towards him, falling into a dizzying skid and hurtling underneath the enormous killer robot's stamping legs, his back to the tarmac, all the while shooting up at the bastard with a grenade launcher and screaming. That adrenaline-pumping moment of ridiculous stuntery is what 95% of Vanquish feels like. Taken at face value, you have here a cover-based third-person shooter much like Gears of War or Uncharted, but taking it at face value would be to ignore Vanquish's key special features. In most games of this type, it's advisable to actually stay in cover, carefully picking off your targets from a distance when they pop their predictable heads up. And the only quick decisions you may have to make are when it looks like you might be about to be flanked. Not so Vanquish. I personally loathe it when people tell me if I'm not having fun with the game, then I'm playing it wrong. But if you're playing Vanquish like that, then you're playing it wrong. Hiding behind cover will get you killed. These guys shoot it to pieces and swarm you long before you could pick them off in the classic way. Instead, you've been given a suit, a marvel of technology with the ability to slow down time, something we've been enjoying since 2001's Max Payne. However, the addition of jet propellers changes the game dynamic completely. Now, whilst diving forth from cover to attack, you can lean into a breakneck slide on your knees across the battleground, arching your back and taking the time to zero in on your enemy's weak spots. 
However, all this while the suit is beginning to overheat, so you're going to have to pull out of the bullet time and back to reality before it hits critical, or suffer the terrifying protracted moment of vulnerability as you literally blow your gasket. But it's that moment of vital decision when you've worn down and very nearly felled your foe and have to choose between staying focused, dispatching him, and very likely falling foul of his comrades, or pulling out, finding cover and recharging quickly at the risk of losing your advantage, that form the salty core of the game. Many of the harder battles will leave you without cover at all, and you'll be up against a colossal tank, a cannon that Shinra will be proud of, and robots that make Devastator look like Scooter. The ultimate aim is to get into an almost subconscious rhythm, alternating between the slow-mo slide and diving away to recharge, staying on the move constantly and using the whole area as a frame to seek out rolling sniping points. There's no levelling up, although you can boost the ammo capacity of your guns but you have to learn to squeeze the most out of the tools you're given. There are moments of delirious action where the world turns upside down and you're surrounded by twisting, snarling, humongous killing machines and the bullets to dispatch them, and in a heartbeat you'll be called upon to unite the two. The only way I can adequately describe playing for an extended period is that it's akin to jumping out of an aeroplane hanging onto the tail of a savage tiger who has a live grenade and the only parachute. That's not to say there aren't flaws. It's very short, there's no multiplayer, the story is some Orson Scott card bunkum about communist robots in a space station, the marine troupes you go in with haven't even got an eighth of a personality between them, the script is iron-chewing tough-guy drivel, and the lead character of Sam is as forgettable as everything else I've just said. The plot is saved from utter mediocrity by the presence of Lieutenant Colonel Robert Burns, who resembles a testosterone-overloaded Santa Claus with a robotic arm. Burns is voiced by Steve Blum, the man who voices Wolverine in Wolverine and the X-Men, Marvel Ultimate Alliance, Hulk vs. Wolverine, Marvel vs. Capcom 3, X-Men Legends, and the Wolverine Origins game. Basically, when Hugh Jackman isn't playing him, it's Steve Blum. And he brings to the Colonel a grizzled, foul-tempered gusto and the likely ability to eat nuclear warheads whole, along with some occasionally surprising viewpoints on war that forms this game's only moment of character. Other than that, it's a series of extended fights and dazzling set pieces with a surprising danger factor if you're not paying attention. Two bonus features are an SD mode for what will constitute a grateful minority, and the ability to switch the dialogue to Japanese, which makes it sound less stupid and even a wee bit tougher. Some would say Platinum Games hit the ground stumbling with Mad World, the stylized but repetitive black, white and red brawler for the Wii, but without a doubt they knocked the ball out of the park with the universally adored update of the Devil May Cry formula in the appealing form of Bayonetta. Vanquish didn't sell as well as Bayonetta, possibly because it was released in the run-up to Christmas, which is fast becoming a place for new IPs to get lost in the bottom-heavy annual release schedule. If it had come out on a barren February Friday, more attention would have been grabbed, and deservingly so. It's reassuring to know that this is the slot that Platinum are aiming their next title at, the uniquely pitched online fighter Anarchy Reigns is out January 2012. It's their fifth game in an ongoing publishing deal with Sega, who appear to be doing their best to remind us what short-burst, high-impact arcade fun is like. Now, Vanquish isn't going to win any awards for scripting or longevity, but while it lasts, it's an exhilarating thrill ride. It's available on Amazon right now for £12, and I urge you all to track it down. Although the only downside is that I suspect that when I get back to Gears, I am going to find it slow and brown. My name is Alex Shaw. If you enjoyed that review, you can find plenty more musings on video games from me and dozens of other creators at theunchartedkingdom.com. Leah, do you remember some of the names we were coming up with when we were trying to think of names for what the website could be back when it was going to be Digital Cowboys and some other castle? I might still have that list. Hang oh, on. Oh, please. Uh, I actually looked back for it. Are you going to look on Skype? 
Um, one of them was going to be Secret Room, which I really loved. Yeah, we went through a bunch of secret stuff. Secret Room and Secret like Universe and Secret something, something. Secret World. I like the idea of it sort of being this sort of special place. I mean, it was it was kind of going to be this forgotten kingdom, like uh, something out of or well, something you'd have liked, uh, Josh, out of Shadow of the Colossus. We were doing brainstorming <laughs> sessions, just like the first thing that was coming into our heads. I, well, I think I might have found it <laughs> because I've got the part where we're talking about cat boob. <laughs> oh yes, cat boob. <laughs> Oh no! I think I found it. Um, all right. Uh, oh, epic! Epic quest log was the one that we were stuck epic on for a long time. Quest log. Yeah. Cat boob. We talk about cat boob a lot. Epic quest log. I'm surprised that hasn't been taken. Actually, that a podcast hasn't got that name already. It was quite good. We were going to frame it around like a, an MMORPG, and everything was going to be color coded. It's yeah. kind of why I I, I, res- I retained purple, because I wanted to keep that kind of epic colour scheme. Alternate. Whoa, wait, wait. And Josh, do you like Vanquish? Yeah, Vanquish is pretty damn good. Um, as you said in your review, like the story's dumb. It's really not that interesting, but just as a piece of action gaming, it's I think it's fantastic. Um, Platinum games in general just craft really great action experiences. And I, I personally think Vanquish, just in terms of the way the character controls, is possibly the best third-person shooter I've played. Um, Uncharted and... Um, oh. <laughs> Uncharted 2 beats it out because it does everything else better. I think Vanquish just just does the controls better. And Resident Evil 4 just has like that special nostalgic place in my heart but just in terms of control vanquish feels so good uh, and so precise i i personally would like to see a sequel even though uh, platinum have this kind of uh, no sequel policy which yeah. i hope isn't i hope they don't stick to that because i'd really like to see a sequel to their games including bayonetta i'd imagine in this one yeah oh yeah that's oh, yeah. forever <laughs> yeah that was an all-nighter Alternate Paradise, Alternate Cartridge, Cartridge Bin, Broken Cartridge, Broken Level, Special Level. Why would we call it Broken Level? I don't broken know. Le- uh, <laughs> more levels, Hidden Levels, Select Levels, uh, Please Press Start. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, it was taken. Yeah, a lot of these were taken. Epic World, Epic Special. <laughs> what? <laughs> Bag of holding inside is a cat with booms. <laughs> pew pew pew. Um, epic winning. No, that sounds like we're sponsored by Charlie Sheen. With <laughs> tiger blood. Uh, are you a bad enough dude to rescue the president? Dot com. <laughs> classy, classy bitches. Classy bitches. Epic explosion. Space. Uh, we decided not to call it anything that was directly linked to Portal, although we were tempted. Yeah, because we went we went through a lot of that. Good, because we've got WouldYouClindly.com, then we have Slow Clap Sensor, Edgeless Safety Cube, <laughs> Goodnight Caroline, <laughs> which I really liked. Uh, yes. The Enrichment Center, Would Valve Sue Us? Yeah, probably. <laughs> porn, 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 PhoenixDown.com, No Square Would Sue Us. Uh, flaming ninjas, ninjasonfire.com. Bunch of ninjas on Pile of secrets. Oh, um, I liked pile of secrets. That's yeah, good. but it was taken. Um, extra brain cells. 
Weird. Nice. Uh, 200.3% completion. Nice. I think we actually stuck on that one for a while, too. The library. Uh, oh, God, yeah, no. The library. Uh, that that can only evoke that horrible Halo level. Mm-hmm. Super, super mega overdrive. <laughs> totally extreme, truly outrageous. Uh, and then we go into uncharted territory uncharted realms uncharted lands and then uncharted kingdom it was me that was your idea yeah okay well done okay next up from game burst and mcv magazine house of mario fancy and mr james bachelor kicks off his series of hopefully objective articles called the nintendo difference this initial piece is about how important skyward sword is for the future of the company The Nintendo Difference. Is Skyward Sword the most important Legend of Zelda title in history? This is The Nintendo Difference, a Gonzo Planet audio column written and produced by James Batchelor. That's me. For those who don't know me, I'm a games journalist, currently a staff writer at UK games industry trade publication MCV, and a co-host at twice-weekly gaming podcast Gameburst. Those who do know me will tell you I am a massive Nintendo fanboy and apologist, though I like to think I maintain a cool head and strong balance when it comes to discussing the worlds of Mario, Zelda and Pokemon. This will be put to the test over the coming months through this. The Nintendo Difference, a series of audio articles in which I will explore a number of topical issues surrounding this genuinely unique, often beloved, and yet often maligned video games company. For this first instalment, I'll be turning my attention to the Legend of Zelda series. In case you've missed the Robin and Zelda Williams adverts, the orchestral concert that toured Los Angeles and London, the release of Ocarina of Time, Link's Awakening of Four Swords on 3DS, and the multitude of gushing retrospectives that have hit gaming websites over the past year, 2011 marks the series' 25th anniversary. Nintendo has naturally been celebrating this occasion with everything I have just mentioned, but this selection of stunts and re-releases has doubled as the PR juggernaut for the newest instalment in the series, The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. This title is due for release on November 18th in the UK, and is the first Legend of Zelda built specifically for the Nintendo Wii, its predecessor Twilight Princess having been originally developed for the GameCube. Now, I have not been reading up on the game's content, despite the multitude of press releases spin-attacking their way into my inbox over the past few months. Things like, confirmed, Link can use potions, and confirmed, Link visits a lake. Nevertheless, I do know enough about the game to draw this very simple conclusion. Skyward Sword may be the most important title in The Legend of Zelda's 25-year history. For a start, it has a lot of promises to live up to. First revealed at E3 2009 with a striking piece of concept art in which Link stood back-to-back with a strange silvery character, the mere notion of the game was quickly seized upon by the avid Nintendo community, dissected and reassembled, as fans tried to predict what form the game would take. Nintendo fans, or at least the ones that are even more enamored with the Japanese giant than myself, are a remarkably determined and resourceful species. It didn't take long for Zelda enthusiasts to deduce that the silvery character on the poster was the spirit of the Master Sword, something that has seemingly been proven true in the more recent trailers released for Skyward Sword. With such passion fueling fan creativity, hype for Skyward Sword quickly escalated, as did theories about the new game, and all from just a poster. This is the danger that Nintendo often faces when announcing a new instalment in the series. The Zelda game that fans imagine is far greater than the one that Nintendo could ever hope to produce. Once the company started talking more specifically about Skyward Sword, fan expectations exploded with some bold claims from Nintendo. 
In September, for example, the company claimed that it took a team of 100 developers five years to build Skyward Sword, making this one of the longest development periods in the series' history, and that it will take gamers 100 hours to complete. Strong words from the people behind Ocarina of Time, a game that many fans can now zip through in 8-10 to 10 hours. Not only does Skyward Sword have to live up to Nintendo's promises and fan expectations, it also has to live up to the prestigious reputation of its predecessors, or more than that, its predecessors' predecessors. 2006 title Twilight Princess was the series' last console release, and is, perhaps unfairly, judged as one of the weakest entries in the series. It clung too tightly to the formulaic plot and structure of previous Zelda games, with very little to differentiate it from the hallowed Ocarina of Time, argued by many as the peak of the series. Since then we've had two handheld RPGs, Phantom Hourglass in 2007 and Spirit Tracks in 2009, both of which were well received, but still left fans slightly disappointed through one thing or another, whether it was their repetitive central dungeon or the lack of an intricate overworld. Interestingly, all three games achieved a Metacritic rating of over 90, as have all the previous Zeldas before them, but this still isn't enough to prevent fans from pinning all their hopes on Skyward Sword to return the series to former glories. So while many will compare the upcoming Wii game to this trio of titles, a significant portion will also be thinking back to Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask and The Wind Waker. While those games are still wonderfully designed, as the 3D re-release of Ocarina proved earlier this year, nostalgia has elevated the pedestals on which these games stand to a ludicrous level, making it vital for Skyward not to fall into the alleged pitfalls of Twilight, Phantom or Spirit. Perhaps the biggest concern is that Skyward Sword will add further ammunition to claims that the series' formula is reaching its breaking point, something that was widely observed in 2006 with Twilight Princess. Guests on the Zelda retrospective episode of the Digital Cowboys podcast waxed lyrical about the strength of the franchise, especially compared to rival adventure RPGs, but the consensus was that change is needed. It is interesting that Nintendo has declared Skyward is a prequel to Ocarina of Time, and thus the earliest entry in the series. While prequels may be ten a penny in the wider world of entertainment, this is the most specific the platformer has been when discussing a new game's placement in the much-debated Zelda timeline. Previously, the company has given vague references to where a new game takes place, often in reference to Ocarina of Time. The Wind Waker was described as 100 or so years after Ocarina. Twilight was said to be slightly less than that. Skyward Sword trailers and marketing materials all state that this is where it all begins. Underlining Nintendo's determination that people understand the game's relationship to its forebears. It may not seem particularly significant, but the insistence that the events of Skyward define the course of the series, and Nintendo's stubborn faith in its proven formula, mean that this could be the closest we ever get to a reboot of the Zelda series. Hopes were high after Skyward's teaser reveal when Nintendo claimed that the game would radically revolutionise the franchise, but this statement was later retracted and the few snippets of reviews that I've allowed myself to read suggest that Skyward is less of a revolution and more of a refinement. Given the ill-deserved ill-will born towards the last three titles, it is vital to the series' future that Nintendo proves there are fresh ways to push blocks, light torches and cycle through the usual arsenal of Boomerang, Hookshot and Bow and Arrow. This task is made all the more challenging by the advances made by other games. In the five years since Twilight Princess, we've had two iterations of the Fable games, arguably the closest equivalent Microsoft has to Nintendo series, which provided new ways for a hero to interact with the world and the people around him, and explored what it means to become a hero. We've had the increasingly complex but richer stories told by Bioware's Dragon Age and Mass Effect series, not to mention the likes of Uncharted, Bioshock and Rockstar's various blockbusters. In this world of near-literary storytelling, are gamers even interested in rescuing a princess anymore? And let's not forget that exactly seven days before Skyward Sword is released, the RPG behemoth of Bethesda's Skyrim arrived, a game many are already holding as the pinnacle of the genre. 
The Onus is on Skyward Sword to prove that the Legend of Zelda series is still relevant to today's gamers, not just compared to other Nintendo games, but games for all formats. Skyward Sword is also Nintendo's only major bid for console sales this Christmas, a selling period the format holder has been able to dominate for the past five years. More than that, it is Nintendo's last major bid for console sales this generation, the swan song for the Wii, the console's last hurrah. After Skyward's arrival on November 18th, the release schedule dries up as Nintendo turns its attentions to Wii U, so it's crucial that the current console, which has been a smash hit financially, but divisive and often deterrent to the so-called core audience, goes out with a bang. This will go some way to helping Nintendo achieve something that many argue they should have been acting on much sooner, reclaiming the core audience. It's no secret that loyal Nintendo fans have felt particularly hard done by over the past five years, even with the release of three Mario platformers, a Mario Kart, a new Donkey Kong Country, Pokemon spin-offs, a Smash Brothers, and now a second Legend of Zelda. But these first-party gems have been few and far between when compared to Nintendo's budget price and shallow minigame collections, or the flood of copycats, or the dancing games. Nintendo has already tried to win the core back with its initial lineup for the 3DS, but with the handhelds versions of Saints Row and Assassin's Creed cancelled, and ongoing delays to Resident Evil and Metal Gear, the reality is far less enticing than the promise. For the Wii U to even stand a chance of recreating the success of its predecessor, Nintendo will need the core audience at its side, the enthusiastic early adopters that will drive the console through word of mouth, the very fans that made Nintendo a success, in other words, the Zelda fans. That's not to discount the broader audience that Nintendo has so proudly cultivated since the Wii's arrival, and Skyward Sword plays a role in keeping them on board too. It is the first Zelda console title released since Nintendo gathered this new audience, the 5-95 to year olds that devote their gaming time to Wii Fit and Professor Layton. While the game will inevitably appeal more to enthusiast gamers, there will be an element of crossover. Lest we forget, all of the motions from Skyward Sword have been seen before in the family-focused Wii Sports Resort which featured sword fighting and archery. Even the bowling can be seen as training for rolling bombs, while the aeroplane mode was a precursor to the bird that would serve as Link's main method of transportation in Skyward Sword. With so many actions that are familiar to the wider audience, Skyward could be the game that takes the Zelda mainstream, building a much stronger future for the increasingly cult franchise. Finally, the motion controls themselves reveal another role for Skyward Sword, to justify the concept of the Wii and Wii Motion Plus. For years, Wii titles have been criticised for the half-assed edition of Waggle, or for not even using the motion sensors at all. Motion Plus was released in 2009, but has been woefully underused. As more games arrive for PlayStation Move and Connect, it's up to Skyward to prove that Nintendo understands how to make motion controls effective just as well as, if not better than, Microsoft and Sony. Yes, it will be a case of too little too late for the current Wii, which needed a title like Skyward Sword several years ago, but it will go some way to helping restore faith in Nintendo's creativity and the bold direction they began with the DS, the Wii, the 3DS and soon the Wii U. So the pressure is on. Early reviews look favourable, but it will take more than critical acclaim to silence anti-Nintendo naysayers. Skyward Sword is shaping up to be a solid entry in the Zelda series, but there is more resting on its shoulders than there has been on any of the previous games. The franchise's reputation and its future. The foundations of Nintendo's appeal to both core and casual gamers for the next generation. And the validity of Nintendo's direction for motion-controlled gaming. Soon, we will know if the game, like its iconic green-clad hero, will rise to the challenge and put all fears to rest.
I love what James did there. He has got such a good voice. He, he's got a better voice than me for uh, for audio articles, and I'm not saying that lightly. Um, it's interesting uh, talking about his article now because Skyward Sword has come out and mm. um, opinions are all across the internet. Um, I personally think Nintendo's done a really good job um, with the game, but I don't know if it's really evolved um, the Zelda formula to the extent that is necessary for the larger audience to care about Zelda the same way they did before. I think if you're a Zelda fan and you've loved the series for a long time, you're going to be like, this is one of the better ones. This is a really great example of the franchise. But if you've kind of burnt out on it and you're not, you're not, you know, that interested anymore, I don't, I don't know if this will really get you back into it. We're going to do a Zelda episode at some yeah. point. Not not just a Zelda episode. We've done one of them. It's it's more specifically the subject matter. Everyone talking about something that they're that fond of, but at the same time has caused such division of loyalties and, and interest, and has burned out a lot of people. And but at the same time, it stretches all the way back to our childhood. So it's there aren't many other series that really are in line with that. I think we've uh, we've kind of settled on Mario, Resident Evil, but you can't really talk about that with sort of fondness in your voice, really. Yeah. Resident Evil so up and down in quality mm, that yeah. it's um, it's a weird series. Metal Gear Solid might be. Oh, yeah, maybe so. On that one. Um, Final Fantasy, but very few people have played all fifteen of them. Yeah, plus spin-offs. I know you have. You could you could do that show on your own. <laughs> yeah, but just I, me. Yes. <laughs> Realistically, I, how many people have played every single Zelda? Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, Josh, your So You Want to Scare Me Hurt article actually got quite a lot, a lot of people talking on the uh, forum as well. I really yeah. enjoyed that. Um, I kind of intended it to just be like a fun, like Halloween type article, but it actually inspired quite some uh, quite interesting discussion on the forum. Mm. Um, a lot of people share my fear of eyes in general. Just don't <laughs> the eyes themselves, or, the eye. or well, not the eyes, involving but eyes. Anything involving eyes. Just don't put anything near my eyes at all. That's <laughs> horrible. Um, sharks as well. Anything underwater. People kind of shared my fear. Yep. Nobody shared my fear, uh, fear of uh, overly cute things, though. No, it seemed ridiculous. <laughs> wasn't sure it, if you were serious it, it, it's it's not it's not really like fear it's more like it's unsettlingly weird to me I think like that puppy looks looks wrong that I, puppy I, I used I in the article I agree with you because of rathergood.com if I see something that's too obtrusively cute I'm waiting for their eyes to start bulging and the moment they start playing the drums <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it's it just looks like it's conspiracy it's constructed just to trick you. Like it's like it's so cute that it's trying to invite you in, and then suddenly, it will t- uh, this is my insane psychology kicking. In. I need a therapist. Um, I think that's what that article established. You're uh, thinking that puppy might be like a Dilophosaurus, and then the second yeah. you get close to it, it'll go and spit yeah. at you, and a ruff will appear around its neck, like it's, like it's swallowed a plate or a of Shakespearean. Just spray acid at me. <laughs> Poor old Dennis Nedry. Next we have Leah's good friend and mine, expat Mr. Dan Ilson, talking about his move to Australia and having to adjust his gaming to fit the land down under. I'm leaving on a jet plane 
stranger in a strange land, gaming on the far side of the world. For over 20 years, I was a U.S. gamer. At the time, I had no idea how good I had it. Following the 9,000-mile relocation from Denver to Melbourne, I had to adjust to the reality of gaming on foreign soil. Despite some initial trials and tribulations, I've managed to adjust to my new situation. The first issue I ran into upon arriving in Australia may have been the most irritating to solve. As those of you who aren't from the US or Japan will be well aware, most of the world operates on 240 volt power, rather than the 120 volt power we use in the US. I knew this. I was aware and prepared for it. What I had not accounted for, however, is how difficult it would be to acquire 240 volt power supplies for my gaming consoles. Kudos go to Sony here. My PS3 has a dual voltage power supply and the charger for my PSP was dual voltage as well. All that was required was a different cable for the Australian power outlet. Nintendo, however, let me down a bit as the Wii and my DS power supplies are single voltage. Fortunately, I was able to pick up a third party DS power supply at retail. However, I did have to order a separate Wii power supply by calling Nintendo support, as they aren't carried anywhere at retail. In case any of you are curious why I'd possibly need a Wii power supply, there's a Zelda game coming out this year. Damn it. The greatest difficulty I encountered was attempting to power my Xbox 360, which is probably the console that I use the most. You can't buy Xbox power supplies at any retail outlets. They have to be ordered from Xbox support. When I made the call to Xbox support, I was told that I could not purchase a power supply that would not cause my console to explode in an ozone-scented inferno. After doing a bit of research and calling back, I assured the script-reading call center employee that the two engineering degrees I had qualified me to be sure that a power supply would not, in fact, jeopardize my console. After legally absolving Microsoft of all responsibility, I was able to order the power supply, which promptly arrived in the post two weeks later. It did successfully power my console without incident. After powering my consoles without starting an electrical fire, I began to investigate the acquisition of new games. I probably could have skipped this step for several months, as my closet currently contains a large cardboard moving box chock full of games that I've yet to play, but that's a separate issue. Let's just say it's a shameful quantity, but not as many as Leia Haydu has lying around. You learn to take comfort where you're able. My primary concern in acquiring new games was regional compatibility with my US bot read NTSC consoles. Thankfully, the adoption of HD TV formats during this console generation has made game regions increasingly irrelevant. For example, the entire PS3 library, with one exception, is region free. Many Xbox 360 titles are also region free, and the fine folks at PlayAsia.com maintain an excellent base of compatibility information. Wii titles are not, due to its standard definition graphics. However, this is only a concern to me in the face of an impending Zelda release, like this year. Beyond the living room-based consoles, my DS and PSP were both region-free and were my dominant gaming platforms while my things were trapped in the seemingly endless purgatory of nautical transport. And Steam, glorious Steam, meant that my ludicrously large library of impulse purchases would continue to be accessible without interruption. Knowing what would work with the hardware I had at my disposal, I needed to adjust my game purchasing methods. Several thousand miles removed from my precious Amazon Prime account and its free two-day shipping, 
I succumbed to nostalgia and wandered into a brick-and-mortar retail outlet. It was at this point that I was shaken to my core. The shock occurred when I lifted a brand-new AAA PS3 title from the shelf and inspected the plastic case. Following a cursory inspection of the screenshots and marketing gibberish on the back of the plastic box, I turned it over in my hands. The image that next crossed my optic nerves caused my three remaining brain cells to seize, laugh incredulously, and lie down for a long nap. After regaining consciousness, I checked the front of the case again. Printed on the price sticker was the appalling price of 108 Australian dollars. Please bear in mind that in the U.S. market, brand new games are released at a $60 price point. Given that the two currencies were at relative parity at the time, this represented well over a 60% premium over the prices I had been conditioned to pay. Which I must say, in this era of online commerce and international shipping, is ridiculous. After continuing to stare at the box dumbfounded for several minutes, I eventually shuffled out of the shop muttering quietly to myself in a manner that almost certainly made the employees of the shop extremely nervous. Months later, I refused to purchase games from Australian retail outlets. The best method I've found is to wait until a few games that I'm interested in have been released and order them from Amazon in a group in order to save on shipping. Though it takes a while for them to reach Australia, it's much cheaper than purchasing them locally. This means that I'm generally a bit behind the times when it comes to recent releases, but I'm willing to swallow that pill in order to spare my wallet. Finally, I've had to adjust to being generally unable to game with my North American friends. Depending on the time of year and the time zone involved, Melbourne is somewhere between 14 and 19 hours ahead of my former home continent. With less than a tenth of the population of the U.S., Australia simply doesn't present as many potential multiplayer partners as my home country. These factors make enjoying the multiplayer or co-op modes of certain games a bit more difficult, and has certainly affected how I allocate my gaming time. In the future, I imagine it will impact my purchasing decisions as well. My gaming habits have also been affected by my home internet capabilities. Due to the infrastructure in Australia, my home internet connection is quite limited in comparison to the service I have in the U.S., especially the upload bandwidth. For symmetrical applications such as online gaming, this is a major disadvantage. The added wrinkle of service plans with a monthly bandwidth cap may cause issues for gamers wanting to download updates and additional content for games as well. Eight months after moving to Australia, I've adjusted my gaming to fit my new locale. While it's no longer as convenient, practically or financially, as it was, I've been able to maintain a 20-year hobby on the opposite side of the globe. Making the transition has given me a greater respect for the aggravations my internationally-based gaming friends have had to deal with over the years. But I suppose that's the lesson here. If something is important enough to them, determined folks will find a way to make it work. This has been Dan Ilson for Gonzo Planet. Thanks for listening. Again, Dan has a fantastic voice for this kind of thing. I, I, it felt like travel writing, and I wanted to hear more because I'm, I'm a particular fan of Bill Bryson's audio books, especially when he reads them himself. And I, I'm just like, I want to hear about the travels did, of Dan. I learned one thing listening to that article. I don't want to live in Australia. Ever. <laughs> um, it sounds so. Like first, first of all, the price of gains over there sounds insane. Mm. What was it? What was the price he's quoted? Hundred eight dollars for a, a new game, and that's roughly commensurate with American dollars as well. <sighs> what I feel sorry for you guys in Australia, Roy Forty Two, if you're listening, you know, 
Sorry, man. <laughs> yep. Come live with us. <laughs> Better here. We got games. They're cheap. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing I love living... Uh, one thing I love about living in this country in particular mm. is that although games start quite expensive here, they drop so fast. Like a month later, you can pick up a game for 20 quid. Yep. It's insane. Game Station today. Brand new. Rage. 1999. Yeah. Crazy. I'm just mad at him for calling me out on having a bigger backlog. <laughs> Not nice. Did. We'll have to. We'll have to have words. If you want to challenge that. him on that? You're going to have to actually call it. Oh, I didn't say he was wrong. I just said I was <laughs> mad at him for pointing it out. And from that Dan, there's another Dan I want to thank uh, for this month, uh, Daniel Floyd, uh, who on at least two occasions has pimped our show to his listeners, and obviously he, he of extra credits gets thousands and thousands and thousands more than we do and uh, since he was on the uh, Sex and Video Games episode number 101 and the uh, Legends of Zelda episode number 164 uh, he mentioned to his community that he was on them and we got huge numbers of downloads for those two which is justifiable because they're two really good old episodes of Digital Cowboys and uh, I'm very proud of them so hopefully a lot of those guys will have stayed hello but yeah, it's if, if you if you are listening, thank you very much. Awesome, please stick around. Good stuff's happening. Getting to reprint and republish Dan's first eight or so uh, animated lectures from before he went on to the to do the them on the Escapist and uh, before he when he was sort of playing with the format back in the day. And uh, it's, it's we've already had sex and video games. I don't know quite which one I'm going to do next, but I'll see if I can link it in with another episode that Dan was in so we can uh, keep his audience interested. And uh, now, Josh, your article, JRPGs, Evolve or Die. Uh, want to give us some insight first or wait until it's done? Um, uh, I'll let it run first and then I'll talk no. about it. The Hunter's Lodge. A place of intellectual discussion and interesting ideas. Sit back, relax, and listen. Hello everyone, my name is Joshua Garrity, also known as Combine Hunter. Many of you are probably already familiar with me. Every month, I will be submitting an audio article on the Freelancers Guild website. My aim is to share with you some of my crazy ideas and hopefully encourage conversation and debate on the site. So, let us begin. My first article, Evolve or Die. Ladies and gentlemen, I have recently come to terms with something I have been denying for a long time. JRPGs have no future. Some of you listening will reject this statement. How can you say this, Josh? You're taking crazy pills. Sure, we're going through a dry patch now, but it will change. But I reckon most of you are probably saying no shit Sherlock right now. Anyone who has followed me in the past knows that this admission does not come lightly. Final Fantasy VII is single-handedly responsible for my obsession with this medium. 
but my love for the genre can no longer blind me to its future. JRPGs were perfect at a certain point in time. I think it's fair to say that most of you listening are in your mid-30s, early 30s. So cast your minds back to the mid to late 90s. You're 15, 20, around that age range. What have you got to do? What are your responsibilities? Absolutely none whatsoever. You have all the free time in the world. I would know I'm that age. So you can spend hours and hours pouring time into these JRPGs. But the average age of a gamer is a lot older now. The majority of the core audience now have full-time jobs, wives and husbands, maybe children. Their gaming time is short, and it is precious. So anything you do play has to grab your attention quickly, and those hours have to feel worthwhile. Where JRPGs stumble is not really their length. Games like Mass Effect can stretch for 40 hours if you complete all the content, and Oblivion and Fallout 3's length is comparable to the length of the average JRPG. It's that JRPGs are super slow-paced, and there is a delayed satisfaction to the gameplay they offer. Mass Effect 1 and 2 are both quite sizable games, but they move at a breakneck pace. You constantly feel like you're making progress and being rewarded for it. After an hour of playing Mass Effect 2, I've caused a prison riot, taken down a corrupt warden, and I've recruited a new member to my team. After an hour of playing Dragon Quest, I've gone from level 19 to 20. But the thing is, it's not like Japanese developers can change this, adapt it. Here's what one of the doctors, Dr. Greg from Bioware, had to say about JRPGs. The fall of the JRPG is in large part due to a lack of evolution, a lack of progression. They kept delivering the same thing over and over. They make the dressing better, they look prettier, but it's still the same experience. My favourite thing, it's funny when I still see it, but the joke of some of the dialogue systems where it asks, Do you want to do this or this? And you say, no. Do you want to do this or this? No. Do you want to do this or this? No. (sighs) Let me think. You want me to say yes. And that, unfortunately, really characterised the JRPG. While I may disagree with him that all JRPGs are the exact same experience, he has got a point. Once extremely popular, the genre is very niche right now. While I personally would have a nerdgasm at the slightest news of Persona 5, I am one of a very small group of people who feel that way. And to be completely honest with you, despite all the praise I heap on the genre, the prospect of Persona 5 is the only JRPG I care about right now. But so this article doesn't end on a sour note. Think of all the genres that have been resurrected in the past few years. Street Fighter 4 has brought back fighting games. Mortal Kombat has made those fighting games playable for normal people. Telltale has brought back adventure games. And L.A. Noir seems to be taking that genre in a really interesting direction. The future's unpredictable. So maybe JRPGs aren't dead. 
Maybe they just need a break. And when they come back, they'll come back stronger than ever. Thank you for listening, everyone. I'll see you next month. Okay, before Josh explains this, Leah, did, did you did you listen to it? I did. Um, I mean, I, I, all I can say is I think I'm probably the throwback, the the exception. But even I, I mean, I, even I have to admit that there's it. It's not complete bullshit. So you know, coming from me, that's pretty high praise. So um, feel special. <laughs> I I. I should have I should have uh, put this in the original article, and if I could go back and redo it, I would. But um, I don't think it's what I said about uh, JRPGs not attempting to evolve is entirely true. I think there have been a couple of examples. Um, uh, more recently, there's been Xenoblade Chronicles, which a lot of people have said have gotten rid of some of the problems people have had with JRPGs. I don't yeah, know and, if, which, and which you can't obtain legally in the United States, so... Uh. Yeah, that, that's what I uh, think the problem is, is these games are released, and but they're completely ignored, or they're not released in the US in uh, Xenoblade Chronicles' case. Um, another example is Valkyria Chronicles, which is kind of like a JRPG, uh, JRPG strategy-type game, which was really interesting but didn't sell at all, didn't make, it was a complete flop, and so it was ignored, and so it's unfortunate, oh well, it's a genre I used to be in love with, but I'm slowly, games like Mass Effect 2 and Skyrim now have kind of filled that void, I'm looking forward to the prospect of Persona 5, but Apart from that, I couldn't care less about any other JRPGs right now. Can you briefly sum up, Leah, what the appeal is, the, the lasting appeal for you? Um, I guess I'm just... I find the larger Western RPGs like Mass Effect, I enjoy them, but I also find them a little intimidating because there's no way to go and do everything and see everything, at least not without massive, massive, massive time commitments. Um, and even then, you're more likely to miss more stuff. I, I, I'm very much a completionist, so... Final I, Fantasy thirteen. sorry! What about it? It's so long. It's incredibly long, again. It, yeah, it, but it's... it's Leveling that Mass Effect 2 takes too much time versus JRPGs. I didn't say it... Well, okay, I did say it takes too much time, but it's... I don't know, it just... Having having a an open world where it's just it just seems more difficult to me to actually be able to fit everything into your playing time or your playing sessions. I think I know what you mean. I think it's, it's easier to be able to see everything when it's set up in that manner, in the manner of a yeah. JRPG. I think yeah. the the Western ones, I know what you mean. They do tend to be a bit more divergent. You, you have um, you'll have sort of legs where you can choose to go down this route or down that route, but in that one playthrough, you're not going to be able to do both. Whereas the the JRPG style does tend towards the more linear. Yeah, I think I think that's. I, I just think that with the Western RPGs, it's it's more a. a it's more being spoiled for choice, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. I just it doesn't match up very well with how I tend to play games. Okay, for this next piece, I'm going to talk about my experience on a certain zombie game that I had originally intended to play through to the end, but had to stop. It's called Dead Island Blues. 
I recently had the misfortune to spend 12 hours of my life playing Dead Island. It's an experience that's been getting mixed reviews from various corners of the internet, and some, like Giant Bomb's trustworthy and professional Brad Shoemaker, extol its furious virtues as a mixture of Borderlands and Fallout 3, and a flawed gem. It's a simple enough pseudo-open-world first-person RPG with heavy emphasis on melee combat as you, one of four survivors, attempt to traverse a tourist-trap island paradise swarming with zombies, fetching batteries, switching on generators, bringing food, and generally ticking off the to-do list at the hapless wastes of polygons who seem unable to shift their bone-idle NPC backsides out into the streets and fetch for themselves. However, that's just how it plays. What it feels like inside your brain meets is far more unpleasant and insidious. You see, Techland are the team behind Call of Juarez the Cartel, a game explored by Daniel Floyd's extra credits on Penny Arcade TV in fascinating detail. That title was a double facepalm in terms of cultural and racial sensitivity, pitching you into the very real war between the police and the drug gangs of modern-day New Mexico, with the measured and tactful demeanour of Prince Philip and Mel Gibson blind drunk at a diversity seminar. It's not as immediately obvious when you start playing Dead Island because the introduction features men and women of every skin type, all either tourists or associated with the tourist trade. It seems a fair melting pot of people all thrown in together, living and zombie alike. And when I say zombie, I don't mean the shuffling, puzzled, empty Romero-style walkers. I mean the screaming, gnashing, Zack Snyder-style infected. There's a very definite difference. The former portrayed in Capcom's original Resident Evil games, and more recently Dead Rising, force you to balance equally slow, rhythmic, controlled attacks with moments of taking panicked flight. The latter are most memorably in Valve's Left 4 Dead series, and Techland has tried to avoid comparisons with those games by putting the emphasis on melee rather than shooting attacks, at least in the first half of the game. But in doing so, have fallen into a series of potholes so deeply and clumsily that you'd almost think that the team don't understand how real people think. In Left 4 Dead, shooting fast zombies in the nick of time before they reach you is an exercise in reactions and teamwork. They take the hit, and if you're lucky, drop to the floor, allowing you to focus on the next wave. In Dead Island, you have to batter and stab your way through each zombie, lamping them repeatedly with crowbars, planks, carving knives, and meat cleavers. It's a visceral and definitely impactful sequence the first time you take one out. It feels exhausting and they should be commended for selling this experience accurately. The same is true the next 10 or 11 times, until you settle into a rhythm and gradually lay waste to hundreds and thousands of infected. After a time, I began to wonder why this felt so horrible. It was just endless, repeated brainings, cracking heads open and breaking limbs. Too much carnage, layered on so thick that the taste becomes foul and the act demeaning and deadening to the soul. Now, it's true that high percentage of games feature violence of some kind, but the level of intensity combined with the act repeated ad nauseum convert it into a background noise that you have to just accept about the game, a reflex as unexceptional as munching standard dots in Pac-Man. What Techland succeeded in doing was making the horrific and upsetting slaughter into an XP grind. This wouldn't be the case if the danger of death or even a single bite brought with it dire consequences. If you lost considerable progress and experience that would bring it more in line with demon souls and prove genuinely terrifying. However, the penalty for being overwhelmed by numbers, which is really the only time an experienced player will go down, is to respawn a few feet away with some easily replaceable money missing from your wallet. Not so much a horrific, agonising end at the teeth and nails of The Walking Dead, so much as getting mugged by three 14-year-olds in Croydon High Street. So if they're not former humans to be pitied or deadly creatures to be feared, what are they? 
and annoyance. There is a truly fantastic zombie game out there just waiting to be made, and this actually contains many of the ingredients. But just like the first Neanderthal who tried mixing squashed tomatoes with herbs, braised meats, and nuggets of his own shit, there are a few too many unpleasant elements to ignore. But that's just the mechanics. That's why I got bored. It's not why I stopped playing. It was, in fact, the slow, creeping feeling of unbalanced racial portrayals that finally got to me. When you start, there are white zombies, there are black zombies, both male and female, and they would appear procedurally generated, which should have equated to a balance. However, the amount of bikini-clad Afro-Caribbean women I found myself battering to a bloody pulp swiftly began to vastly outweigh all other kinds of zombies. Every time I smashed a woman's head in, patted down her decapitated ragdoll corpse and stole $14 from her G-string, it added to a viewpoint forming cumulatively in my mind, that of Techland's dev team and what seemed a genuinely thoughtless, if not just plain nasty attitude. It's worth noting here that there is an unlockable skill in this game for one of the female playable characters that gives her a damage bonus against male opponents. In the game, the skill is called Gender Wars, but the original title, still accessible in the debug of the PC version, was Feminist Whore, a private joke by one of the devs. That it even got that far says nothing categorical about the team itself, but certainly that the chap in question was extremely unprofessional and also an utter twat. The abiding unsavoury feeling first struck me when I saw the trailer for Dead Island months ago, the one that plays backwards and features a little girl being mutilated before attacking her parents. It's deeply upsetting, and if it had been representative of even a shred of the game itself, could have proved a fitting overture to a story about coping with loss and having to do horrible things to stay alive. Instead, it was simply inflammatory false advertising, which had more in common with other movies and games than it did this title. But what finally tipped me over the edge was moving on from the initial tourist area to the inner city where Techland shifted its sights away from an endless stream of insensitively depicted Afro-Caribbean savages and instead gave me a barrio full of poverty-stricken Hispanics to slaughter. This all happened years ago with Resident Evil 5 and I'm not excusing Capcom either. That was dim-witted, ham-fisted, club-footed and clumsy portrayal as well, even going so far as to have your character attacked by grass-skirted tribal zombies that wouldn't have looked out of place in the 1930s King Kong. But I think that because that game was huge and the arguments of racial insensitivity amounted to a donut hole, that people are just giving this one a free ride. Don't. This doesn't actually happen all that much in video games. Most developers are very cautious of upsetting any particular groups with an unfavourable portrayal. Hence the array of unnamed Middle Eastern countries you fight in, or the culturally diverse fundamentalist groups you slaughter by the thousands. Or Russia. It's open season on those guys, it seems. That's why when something like this does happen, it sticks out like a sore thumb and leaves us shaking our heads over how it came to be in the first place. We, as the more vocal side of the gaming public, need to make sure we take them to task over products like this, lest the equally unbalanced, fear-mongering, alarmist, research-optional viewpoint of Fox News makes this turgid, grotty little game world-famous. And here is the point. Techland are a Polish company are people not unfamiliar with the concept of racism directed towards them. They absolutely must hold themselves accountable and responsible for how they portray others. (laughs) 
right now, after this double whammy of ignorance, I'd suggest focusing on driving games, while the entire staff undergoes a series of cultural awareness training sessions. Failing that, I have a large haddock here, so if they'd like to form a queue, I can dispense my own brand of sensitivity upgrade. I, I, I don't really have much to say because I haven't played uh, Del Island, so uh, if Lee, do you have anything to say? Or Yeah, I, I did play Dead Island, and I think I lasted a little bit longer uh, than Alex did, um, but not by a whole lot. I had kind of a similar experience, except I wasn't really struck with the racism thing or the bias or however you want to categorize it. Um, I'm not saying that that means it wasn't there. It's just that that wasn't what... I guess for me it was just more a question of the repetitive nature of these really, really, really horribly violent killings that you're doing the entire time. That just, ugh, I mean, I, I, it, it seemed incredibly unbalanced when what you have to do in order to go pick up somebody's shopping list from the house that they vacated, and oh, by the way, can you please kill my family while you're there? I, that, it just... No moral it, choice it required. Just, just kill them with a crowbar. Yeah, and I mean, I that I I wasn't really looking for a particularly deep story, but if it had been a little bit more balanced, I think I would have been uh, happier with it. Comparing it to Fallout's really unfavorable. Oh yeah, no. The I, amount of times in Fallout that you, you were like, "That's really quite interesting." Borderlands probably a bit closer. Yeah, that switch, that was that was kind all of those guys who charge at you screaming for zombies. But, you know, I mean... But Borderlands is cartoonish. Borderlands had midgets. Midgets with flamethrowers, and um, that was more entertaining than zombies in... I was never upset by anything in Borderlands. No, because it it wasn't... It it was just... It it was. It was just over-the-top and silly. This was not... I mean, it was over-the-top, certainly, but it wasn't over-the-top in a ridiculous, almost parody way. Hmm. They tried to be a little bit too serious with it, and if they if they had really wanted to be serious, then I, I think they would have, like I said, done done more of a balanced thing with it. I think the one thing that uh, you and I both have in common on Dead Island, Lear, is that neither of us played it multiplayer, and that, from the sounds of it, is the way you're supposed to play. It takes any notion of role-playing or, or getting into the atmosphere of the game out, because ultimately, if you're playing with other people, and just like Borderlands, just charging around from one place to the next, dispatching zombies as you go, it kind of just, you know, almost effortlessly at that stage, then uh, the, the, the notion of actually feeling like you're there is dispensed with, but it Maybe it's a bit less of a grind. I don't know. See, that I'd heard that that multiplayer was a great way to play Dead Island as well. But for me, with a game like that, with the atmosphere that I wanted that game to have, it's not a group experience. Like I, I mm. to me, something like that, or like a Resident Evil. If you if you're traveling in a group and you're traveling with it kind of brings the gravity to a halt. Like, if if it were a game like Borderlands, I played some of Borderlands. I enjoyed Borderlands quite well, single-player and multiplayer, because I did try both. But that game is more of a social experience to me because you don't have this atmosphere of, like, death and horribleness all over the place. If you have mm. that, you're you're getting rid of the gravitas of the whole situation if you're playing with your friends and saying, huh, let's see how far I can punt this zombie's head, you know? I, yeah. Uh, I don't know. 
I, I mean, maybe the gameplay itself would have been a lot better, but the actual atmosphere wouldn't. I mean, I you're still think. clobbering people with crowbars. I don't think it can lessen it that much. Uh, depends on who you're playing with. Yeah. I just said people with crowbars. I never really disconnected and started thinking them more as zombies. I just, they just seem like savage people. Mm. You know? Infected. I, th- with, there was never really any horrible real skin problems. Yeah, they weren't even really rotting all that much. At least not to begin with. I mean, maybe there's some rotting ones later on, but it just doesn't feel like you're up against zombies at all. They've never been able to portray um, infected like they did in, in 28 days and 28 weeks later. Those guys are terrifying, and they've never been able to portray how lethal a single bite can be. That you've never been that scared of them. Imagine just getting bitten once and you're fucked. Well, I think they do actually address that in Dead Island, don't they? Because you're supposedly immune to the virus. I, I think it would just be... Well, they they narratively take the same get-out clause as Left 4 Dead, then. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you're immune. Don't worry about it. Except Left 4 Dead is good. <laughs> yep. And also, with Left 4 Dead, even when you're on your own, you're with your other guys, and it feels a bit more kind of like a team effort. Josh, go on. No, I was just saying, I think it would be interesting to see if a game actually would have the balls to say okay, you can get infected mm. by the zombie virus and try and create a mechanic around that. I know it'd be difficult and it would be hard to make actually fun for the player, but just somebody try it. It'd be interesting. Yeah. It's almost, it's all, you're almost certain in this game to end up dying and, and an infected zombie. That if you can somehow get through without getting bitten once... Than, than you're a Dark Souls champion. I don't know. I just keep coming back to Demon Souls and Dark Souls. I've never played them, but I'm I'm massively compelled by the notion of the challenge and the fear. I don't know. Bring the fear back. Terrifying. Yeah. I can tell you that much. You're, you're but, not scared so much of the big greebly thing as losing everything that you've you've worked towards. Oh yeah, that part that part is terrifying. Yeah. It's like in uh, Fable 2, where if you uh, if you defy them enough, they take away your experience. You're like, I, I, that's my experience. Well, this is this is a complete side tangent, but um, <laughs> particularly when Dark Souls first came out, and some Demon Souls stuff. So there's you know certain people who will complain about not being able to play it multiplayer, and that just bothers me so much. These games are not multiplayer games that gets rid of the entire point. I don't know. Just a personal opinion. Oh, and speaking of Left 4 Dead, you did your learning to shoot things article. Oh, yeah. I almost forgot about that. How, how long has that been? Six years? Seven uh, years? You that? I don't know. When did Left 4 Dead 1 come out? Uh, it was like 2008, wasn't it? Okay, so that's... I know, because it was 2009 when I was at PAX and everyone was like, It's too soon! Okay, so two, so if it was 2008, then yes, that would be three years. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, have you gotten better since then? A little. I'm still not very good. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm better than I was because I play more of those types of games now. But I'm still not very good at multiplayer um, unless people are helping me and not actually shooting me in the face because that that's still a problem. <laughs> Generally, I don't really like uh, shooter multiplayer, competitive multiplayer anyway, because the people who play that tend to be insanely dedicated, and you don't stand a chance if you're just casually rolling in and saying, oh, I want to have a little go at this. No, I'm just going to die over and over again. 
I much prefer co-op, like Left 4 Dead. I just think that's a much more enjoyable multiplayer experience. Yeah, I like I like that. I, I um, enjoyed when I played like ODST, um, and I, I picked up Halo the Halo Anniversary Edition that I am looking forward to playing co-op uh, with. Several different people have approached me and said that they wanted to play co-op with me because apparently it makes them feel better to have somebody like me around who can't actually hit things. Oh, cool. um, <laughs> it's okay. It's cool. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. Co-op is, is way better for me. It's not even all that long since you actually played the original Halo, is it? Not very, no. Yeah. Michael Fox, co-host of Joypod and host-producer of the somewhat popular board-game-focused Little Metal Dog Show, was the first person that sprang to mind when I thought about introducing the medium to our community. I know bugger all about board games, and they're pretty daunting to outsiders, so Michael's combination of expertise and lovely teacher's voice is the perfect way to draw us in. And this is Games You Might Want to Start With. Hello, I'm Michael, and you might know me from a certain show called Joypod, which is meant to be about video games, but generally descends into a fit of misery and hatred. Uh, I currently co-present that with uh, David Turner and Sean Bell. I also do a uh, show about board games that's called The Little Metal Dog Show, and you can find out stuff about that over at littlemetaldog.com. And that's why I'm here, really. This is what I'm going to be talking about when I do these little audio bits. A lot of people, I've noticed, seem to be vaguely terrified of these bits of cardboard and plastic that come in boxes. But in all honesty, board games have been around for far much longer than video games, so why be scared? If you're sitting around playing video games, you really shouldn't be the kind of person who's worried about being called nerdy. And if anything, sitting around a table and playing board games is a lot less geeky than you'd think. There's a lot more social interaction, and it's a lot more fun winding up somebody who's sitting across a table from you rather than just howling down a headset at them. Now, this isn't to say that I don't like video games. I bloody love them. I'm currently working my way through Mario 3D on the 3DS and Zelda Skyward Sword, and they're both fantastic. I love them. But I also like to split my time between the electronic stuff and the cardboard. There seems to be a bit of a renaissance going around at the moment in board gaming. It seems to be coming a lot more... Well, I don't want to say respected, but people are taking time out to actually look at the kind of things that are available. You might have memories of those horrible three-hour-long games of Monopoly where nobody actually knew the correct rules when you were playing them as a kid, or having to sit down and play Cluedo with your grandmother on Christmas Day. But, much in the way that games technology has moved on in the last 20 years, so has board gaming. Pretty much any subject that you may find interesting, if you do a little bit of digging around, you will inevitably find a game that's going to interest you. I'm currently sitting in my office as I record this, and there's about half of my collection stashed up here, which is about 300-odd games. Everything from mad scientists to city planning, through to space exploration, working in a crappy shop and trying to steal as much stuff as you can, fighting off monsters, art, robots... RPGs, firing lasers at Egyptian sculptures, flying balloons, pretending to be a ninja, building castles, or even the evolution of species over the course of billions of years. That's just a handful of some of the games that I've got here. And the cool thing is, when you're playing them, when you're learning how to work your way through them with your mates, it's an amazing social experience. Now, of course, I'm not going to suggest that you go down to your local game shop, throw a load of money down on the counter, and walk out with the first thing that looks like it's going to be good. It might not be. There are a lot of crappy board games out there, as there are a lot of crappy video games. If you haven't played board games in a while, you're probably going to be mildly terrified by some of the stuff that's on offer. So you should go for what we call some gateway games. These are ones that are still fun, still entertaining, but the games are really quite simple. They're really, really simplified rule sets that just tell you what you need to do, how you do it, 
and they can get on with playing in next to no time. Today, I'm going to suggest three games that you can check out for yourself. And the first one is called Carcassonne. This is a very simple tile-laying game. You've got lots and lots of little square tiles, and the object is to build the board as you play the game. As you take turns, you'll be building castles, fields, long old roads wiggling off all over the place. And you also have these little guys called meeples, tiny little wooden people in your colour that you put down to claim these areas for yourself. Once an area is complete, you'll score points for that, and whoever has the most points at the end of the game is the winner nice and simple. You can also check that one out on iOS systems as well. Very very lovely interface and not very expensive. Secondly, if you're looking for something that maybe isn't all about creating the map but it is all about you dominating it, there's a fantastic series of games called Ticket to Ride out there made by a company called Days of Wonder. Here you start with a big map, the basic set is of the USA, and you have a set amount of small little train carriages. The object is to build rail networks between loads of cities throughout the country. And between each pair of cities there are coloured spaces. You need to collect coloured cards and play them at a certain time in order to put your own little trains down to link these cities together. Say for example there are two cities that have four pink spaces between them. When you have four pink cards, you put them down in your turn, fill up that space with your four little trains, and score points. Again, it's a matter of who has the most points at the end of the game, but there's a secret element to this one. You begin the game by drawing special cards that say two cities that you need to link. They're often on completely opposite sides of the board. If you've managed to link them at the end of the game, then you'll score some hefty bonuses. If you haven't linked them, you will actually lose points. So there's excitement all the way through to the end of the game. This is one of the great things about games that are coming out now. There's very little player elimination. If you're in, you're in until the end of the game. And you'll always have a vested interest in trying to do as well as possible. My final recommendation is a really cool little party game. It was originally released as Diamond, where you played miners going into a mine trying to find as many precious jewels as possible. But it's now available as Incan Gold, which sees you play a bunch of explorers who are moving further and further into an Incan temple trying to steal the treasures. A series of cards are played onto the table, each one saying how many treasures are available on that card. Say, for example, seven. The treasures are shared out equally amongst all the players who are currently in the game, with any remaining left on the card itself. And after every card has been put down and the treasure has been shared out, everyone secretly decides whether to run away or stay. It's really a game of push your luck, because how far do you want to go into that temple before everything goes wrong? And believe me, stuff will go wrong. Because there's loads of cards in the stack that are actually problems. Things like explosions or snakes. If a pair of problems come up, then anybody who's still left in the game is killed and they get out with nothing. It's played over the course of five rounds, so you're not out of the game at all. It's just that you've managed to lose all of your points for that single round. Do you play it safe, grab a few treasures and then come out? Or do you try and push your luck as far as you can? Anyway, I've gambled on enough, but if you're interested and you've tried any of these games out, let me know. Drop me an email, michael at littlemetaldog.com, and I'd love to hear from you, especially if you've got any other games that you think are really, really good to introduce people to the hobby. I'll be back again next time to talk about more games, as always. But for now, thanks for listening. I'm completely ignorant when it comes to board games, so it was um, interesting hearing Michael giving like some suggestions for uh, somebody who's a noob like me. Um, I, I have, it's weird because there's kind of been this huge upswell of people interested in board games all over the place, mm. not just in um, our communities, but I've seen it in the um, mainstream press as well. Uh, if anyone listens to Weekend Confirm, they know that Jeff Canata is constantly going on about board games on, week, on that podcast. 
um, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, I uh, I had kind of a, a similar reaction to it. I even even stronger maybe because I, I I'm one of those people who is just intimidated by board games because it just seems like there's way too much to keep track of. So um, it 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 did. Um, kind of interest me to hear him talking about some of the ones that might be a little bit less daunting to uh, get into. Audio articles. Are they justified? Right. Uh, we got a uh, comment on, actually on your thing, Leah. Have you, did you notice this one from Wixar? I did not read it, no. It was uh, after the Leighton thing, I, because I put on the uh, on every audio article, which also contains text, I put, let us know what you feel about this this new format. And uh, Wixo did. He told us how he felt. Uh, I frankly don't see the point of writing and recording it when the two are identical except for the added music. I like listening to podcasts, but I would much rather read an article like this in a few minutes instead of having to hear somebody read it to me. This is just my personal taste. You do good narration. She's talking about you there. Ah. <laughs> I countered with uh, possibly somewhat over-defensively. In the case of the audio articles with accompanying text, you're presented with a choice. We should probably make that clear at the beginning, but I personally prefer hearing the author to reading blocks of text. Also, consider the blind and the deaf, both of whom are catered for here. Uh, what does everybody else think? Should we remove the choice and not print the text, or not bother taking the trouble to construct the audio and thus be just like every single other text-based site out there? Or is the notion of choice appealing? I, I like the idea of having a choice, to be honest. I mean, I personally prefer um, listening to the audio articles because um, I can be doing other things like chores and stuff like that while my brain is pleasantly distracted by um, clever people talking about interesting topics. Similarly, I, I think that it's nice to just have the choice there. I mean, if somebody does prefer to read the, the text, there's no reason that they can't. But if somebody does want to just have a listen, I mean, it's it's kind of the argument why have audio versions of books available if it's just the exact same thing that's in the book itself. That's a fine point. Because yeah. I don't particularly like audio books, but I prefer audio articles. I I don't know. It's, it's choice. I don't I don't see why we shouldn't have it. If it's there depends anymore. on the audiobook. Some, some of them are read really poorly and some of them are absolutely captivating. I'm going to maintain with the choice and every time someone sends me that not just the audio but also the, the original text as written, I'll make sure that they're both up there. James Perkins and Darren Gargett host the IDKFA podcast, a show fueled by a fine chemistry that exists between them. They claim inspiration from Digital Cowboys and Gamerdork, so it's rather appropriate that they have a monthly piece for Gonzo Planet. They hit upon the idea of a mini-quiz show, and they have called these Breathe the Pressure. The first one is on the recent trailer for... The first one is on the subject of the recent trailer for Grand Theft Auto V, and here it is. Welcome to the IDKFA baby. Welcome to uh, Gonzo Planet. Uh, Alex Shaw's uh, new adventure on the internet, and he's uh, he's he's asked us all to join together and do uh, audio articles and video and written articles and stuff to uh, contribute to his website. We're one of the lucky few. He must have been desperate. But yeah, um, before this happened, uh, before the Digital Cowboys split, we were asked to do it for um, what they mentioned on their last episode, uh, Digital Cowboys Presents. We were going to do this feature for them, uh, the, back then. and It was called uh, Breathe the Pressure. We've decided to keep the name mm-hmm. and the jingle, which sounds similar to our original jingle, but with a bit of a prodigy twist with the name Breathe the Pressure. Come play my game, I'll test you. Whereas before it sounded like you know, we were quizzing each other on games that we 
we asked each other to play. So, you know, I, t- I asked you to play this, and you asked me to play that, and we quizzed each other on it. But um, that's having a bit of a change. We're going to have one question master each uh, each submission. And this week, I'm the quiz master. You are the quiz mistress. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> the, the question answerer. Okay. And, uh, and this week, we are. I am asking questions of... Um, the Grand Theft Auto 5 trailer that was recently released and uh, and, uh, test your knowledge on that trailer in particular. Okay. Um, So I think because this is the first one we've done for Gonzo Planet, I think we better introduce ourselves. So uh, I am James Midgemeister Perkins. And uh, I'm the Desmond. We are from the IDKFA podcast. We are indeed. It's like a little bonus feature for people who who, uh, who listen to us. They can listen to us somewhere else for some strange reason. <laughs> yeah, so let's get to the questions, man. Let's do it. Let's do this. So, Mitch. Question one. In the Grand Theft Auto 5 trailer, this is how I'll start all my questions. In the Grand Theft Auto 5 trailer, what was the name of the jet ski? That was uh, seen in the trailer. It had like a little, like a name at the bottom of the jet ski. Oh god! Um... I'm asking five questions, by the way. Uh, I don't know. Is the Pimpinator? Well, it's not a bad guess. Uh, the, the full name was the Speedophile 2000. <laughs> <laughs> yep, the Grand Theft Auto humour coming through there in subtle ways, and uh, yeah, it, it made me laugh. The Speedophile. Question two. What was seen uh, spreading over certain people in the uh, in the fields of... Uh, I don't know where it is. Where is it? Las Venturas. Las Vegas sort of style. What, what was seen spreading over some people in a certain scene? Spreading over people, I don't know. Uh, was the sun rising? So it was sun... sun rays? I don't know. <laughs> no. The, the fertiliser was spreading over the crops and therefore the farmers in the field. Of course. Question three. Uh, can you tell me the the first thing you hear from the uh, from the trailer in terms of uh, dialogue from the character, the narrator? The first thing he says? Yeah, the first thing he says. Oh, God. I'm so bad at this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I can't remember. He says, "Why did I move here?" Oh, I guess it was the weather. <laughs> Midge, you should have done your research, man. <laughs> Question four: Instead of Hollywood, uh, the, the the famous uh, the Hollywood lettering, what is replaced uh, in the Rockstar version? What replaces that in the Rockstar version? Vinewood. Vine- oh, he's got one right. Oh Look yeah. At that. <laughs> Last up is question five, and uh, the, there's a scene where a guy is thrown out of a bar by a bouncer. Uh, above the door is like some sort of like canopy, sort of gazebo type thing, and uh, there's a name of a drink. Uh, it's probably the name of the bar as well, but the name of the drink is uh, labelled on the top. Can you name me the drink and what kind of funny sort of tagline it has accommodating it? I know Inferno. It will make you shit bricks. I don't know. <laughs> you know what? It's not a point. But, you know, that could be in there. It's called Tequila La. Ah, oh, Tequila La. <laughs> I think, um, how many questions is that? Is that four? Four questions? 
No, I think that's five. Is that five questions? <laughs> We're really bad. <laughs> oh dear. Well, that was a rather successful breathe the pressure there, Major. I feel like you were struggling with the 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 uh, what what's the word I'm looking for? I think you're struggling with the uh, the very intricate questions I was asking there. Yes. You should have done your research, I'm afraid. Yeah. I feel like you you got one out of five there. Um, poor show. Woohoo! <laughs> Let's hope that you can do better um, when we return next time. So next time on breathe the pressure. I am going to be the quiz master, and I will be quizzing Desmond on. Oh God! Resident Evil After Afterlife, the latest Resident Evil film to be released. Uh, Resident Evil Five, the film is in the works. But uh, yeah, we watched um, Resident Evil Afterlife a fair few months ago when you uh, travelled up to Worcester, walked in at Fourgate, and uh, came to visit me. And uh, yeah, let's just see if you were and uh, paying any attention. I mean, this might no. be cute to go out and rent it if you can put yourself through it again because you don't like <laughs> it. But uh, yeah, I'm not renting that. There we go. So next time, we'll, I will be quizzing Desmond on Resident Evil Afterlife. Thank you very much uh, for listening to the first edition of Breathe the Pressure. And uh, yeah, we don't know anything. I don't know if we can swear on these things. So yeah, we don't know a thing, anything. Indeed. Thank you very much. Those two have a really interesting chemistry, and mm. uh, I like to see them all over the place. They're uh, spreading out, but uh, it's a good thing. I haven't actually seen the Grand Theft Auto Five trailer, so I was lost, but <laughs> it's okay. That actually made it onto the IMDb front page. That's how huge that was. I just, I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> and I know I'm in the vast, vast minority, and I am super happy for people who do, but I you know, just, just haven't actually gone out to find it yet. The thing for me is, I'm not really a fan of GTA, but I was a huge fan of Red Dead Redemption. I just hope Rockstar apply the lessons that they've learned from Red Dead to GTA 5 to make it just a more enjoyable experience for people who maybe didn't really get into GTA 4. What did you guys think of Gonzo Fiction? I kind of wanted to do a reading of one or two of these, one or both of them um, right now, but I I felt I'd I'd leave it off and and see what other people, because I kind of want to draw people's attention to these before I start reading them off. It was created by uh, Willith, and the idea is it's it's not it's it's fanfic, but it's kind of guess the fanfic. So you, you you read the whole story and you're trying to work out what game universe it's set around. And at the end, there's kind of a blatant little clue. It, it doesn't st- it still doesn't say it. It doesn't tell you directly, but by the end you should kind of know if you know the game. I think it's an interesting idea, um, and I I probably would experiment with my own uh, in the future. I don't, I'm not that confident a storyteller, so I'm, I'm good at like being highly critical of a game or just talking about my ideas on something, but creatively, I'm just an idiot. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, I, I think it's interesting. It'll be, I want to see more people uh, try it, just to experiment with it and see mm-hmm. what stuff we can uh, produce. We've only got a few uh, responses to it so far, and one or two people were like, I-, "I don't get it. What's this from?" And then you know you prompt them and say, "Look, there's a there's a really obvious visual clue at the end," and then they go, "Oh, 
Which is it's kind of good because it means that they ha- we haven't written them too blatantly and too obviously. But no one's really talked about peppered steak yet. I was kind of proud of that one. I didn't Just get it. I'll go ahead and say it. I did not get it. You did not get it. <sighs> oh, sorry. Should I have? But, uh, I don't think you've played this game, but I'm not going to spoil it. That's No, that's what I was asking. Is it Josh, you okay? almost certainly have played this game. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Leah, your first audio piece. Yeah, um, well, originally I had wanted to do video stuff, but I just have not had the time um, to, to really do what I wanted with it. So I, I went ahead and did the uh, the audio section instead. And um, I, I think I've decided that what I want to focus on is handheld gaming because not a lot of sites have uh, a strong handheld presence unless it's something huge. So the first one that I talked about was the Professor Layton, specifically the uh, the newest Professor Layton game, which I just finished recently and very much enjoyed. Well, let's play that piece now. is a platform that is, and always has been, well-suited to games you can play for just a few minutes as you wait for a bus, a table at a restaurant, a significant other trying on pants in a fitting room. Sometimes this comes in the form of short, easily managed platforming levels, such as those you find in most Mario or Kirby games. Sometimes it's an addictive, turn-based puzzle like Puzzle Quest, which, God help me, I'll undoubtedly talk about at length in a future topic. And sometimes it's something that requires a bit more brain activity. The Professor Layton series falls into the latter category. It's so far gone through five iterations in Japan and four in the rest of the world. I've recently completed that fourth title, Professor Layton and the Last Spectre, and it raised some interesting questions for me. For those who might not be familiar with the series, it's very simple to sum up. You follow the adventures of Herschel Layton, renowned archaeologist and puzzle master, through a world where everyone and everything requires some sort of brain teaser to be solved before progress can be made, information will be given, or really anything can be accomplished. It's sort of a strange conceit, but once you take that for granted, it all starts to make a strange sort of sense. It's tough to describe, but even though the puzzles you find as you progress through Layton's world are all different, they share something. Some kind of common logic. I think the best way to explain it is to say that there's almost always a trick involved. Very rarely are the puzzles straightforward. Sure, some of the simpler introductory ones are, but far more frequently, you need to employ an almost sideways thinking style in order to make much progress. This is where my big question comes in. The Layton games do make concessions to accessibility. Not all puzzles must be solved in order to progress through the story, and they do provide plenty of hints that can be purchased to assist you if you're having a particularly tough time. In the end, though, sometimes you just have to be able to see what the puzzle is driving at. You simply have to have that thought mode active in your brain. Now, lest I sound like an elitist snob here, let me point out that I don't believe this is directly related to intelligence at all. It's not a matter of what you know, it's a matter of how you think. So my question is, can that be taught? You can improve reaction times in a shooter through practice, and you can even learn maps and required motions in platformers because they'll eventually be drilled deep into your muscle memory. But if the puzzles are always different, if what you need to learn to succeed in Layton is in a specific skill, 
but an actual way of thinking, is that something that can be learned? The short answer is, I don't know. It's like trying to teach someone common sense. You can show them how to react in specific situations, and you can give them general guidelines to follow, but in the end, it's all up to how they synthesize and adapt that information. They really just have to learn by doing. So, wait. If the best way to nurture a tricky skill like that is to give plenty of opportunity to practice in varied situations, then wouldn't the latent games be less of a test and more of a tool? Yes. Everyone's pace will undoubtedly end up being different, but really, the only way to teach someone how to play a game like Professor Layton is just to let them do it. Does this mean it's going to work out for everyone? Of course not. But that doesn't mean it can't. They're a very specific type of puzzle, and they're very varied in, in within that type. Um, but there's just... I, it's, it's hard to explain, but there's just a way of thinking that you have to, it's, it's almost, you have to know that there's going to be some kind of a trick. You have to know that, that it's not going to be as easy as straight up solving some kind of puzzle. I, I, I don't know. It's t- tough to describe, but I, I really just got into that groove and I, I enjoy them for that. They do come, um, I, I did a lot of, uh, lateral thinking logic puzzles as a kid. I used to get sort of books of them and, and they do, steer you down thinking a particular way once you, as you say, once you get into the swing of this is how the puzzles are done um, you're looking for the twist, you're looking for the, uh, the, the thinking around it rather than just approaching it straight on, which is I, I really enjoyed it, I, I like the late games, got a lot out Except for Luke who's a little bitch and I just want to slap him <laughs> <laughs> Sharon, you got an article called What Have I Done With My Geek Self? I did get quite a few people talking. Yeah, I was um, I was quite pleased about that. It's the first time I've done anything audio style that was mine. I mean, I've been on uh, a couple of the Gonzo shows and a couple of the um, Digital Cowboys shows, uh, but most of my own work is uh, text based and certainly traditionally on more the fiction angle. I'm certainly planning on giving the. Uh, the gonzo fiction a try at some point um but yeah i thought the article came together quite well and i liked what was done with it i had it professionally edited <laughs> you flatter me um yeah i, I thought I, it came up quite well so. it's easier than it would, might seem to be able to convert a, a text article into an audio article in that you just need a little bit of audio equipment and yeah, yeah. The the pacing and the rhythm usually um, seems to you know if it flows on the page, then it usually flows the way it's spoken. It certainly seems to. Hello, friends. Don't you want to meet a nice girl? What have I done with my geek self? What up, new? I have a confession to make. Several, in fact. I'm massively behind with the Song of Ice and Fire series. I'm still only on the second book. 
although I have got the next two lined up courtesy of a Waterstones gift card, so score. I've only seen Dexter up to season three. Avoiding spoilers has now become a way of life. I haven't got to the end of a graphic novel in years. I still haven't finished L.A. Noire. I'm failing as a geek. In fact, I'm wondering how far I have to fall before I lose my membership card. Once upon a time, I engaged with the people I enjoy spending time with over the same TV shows, comic books, video games. Now I don't feel that engaged with anything much at all. So far, I've blamed a succession of issues. Shift work, motherhood, too much debt, not enough disposable income. It's not the right time, the right mood, the right circumstances. I kept insisting that life was getting in the way of the things that, when I was younger, made me, me. But I don't think life is meant to get in the way of the enjoyable things. Life is the enjoyable things. So where did I drop the ball? Being a parent is a bitch when it comes to retaining your individuality. Maybe being a mother is worse for it, but I'm pretty sure there are more than some fathers who can empathize. The world looks on how well you're raising your offspring, and what is often meant by this is how much are you sacrificing? How much of your time and money have you stopped spending on yourself and started spending on your little darling? Since commitment to the geek way of life often involves both. £40 for a newly released game? I still don't know how they sleep at night. It could easily be argued that the presence of a kid is enough to thwart the most determined nerd. Combine wanting to be a good mother with wanting to be a good wife, a good daughter and sister, a good employee and a good citizen, well, something's going to slip. Those little enthusiasms that shaped who I was just seemed like the easiest thing to let go of at the time. But there are new models of access, which I'm going to have to admit I just haven't embraced properly. My reasons why would probably take several months of therapy. And since I am so very fond of telling people that what I love about modern technology is the flexibility, it's about bloody time I took my own advice and instead of constantly lamenting my lack of funds and free evenings, examined the cheap, time-maximizing options that are available to me and everyone else in my position. So I am setting myself, initially, a three-part challenge to get my nerd credentials back up to scratch. 1. Gaming. I am definitely not making the most of the iOS platform. Portable gaming has come on in leaps and bounds since I was introduced to the brick-like dimensions of the original Nintendo Game Boy by my best friend Angela a couple of decades ago. I have Plants vs Zombies, which I keep meaning to get back to, but don't. This despite the fact that a level takes a few minutes, and there are many of these in a day. The damn iPod comes with me to work, then stays resolutely in my bag while I spend my lunch staring at the posters on the wall of the break room. Also, there are games other than PVZ that I could quite easily put through their paces and review. Most of them cost less than £2. Please can the iOS lovers out there tell me where to start. 2. Comics There are websites I can read stuff on. Yes, there are also iPod apps, but I can't squint that hard. I don't need to spend hours in Forbidden Planet International, much though I would love to be able to. I'd miss finding those fantastic little indie titles that they hide behind the latest Spider-Man. Anyone who hasn't read I Feel Sick by Joan and Vasquez, do so. But if the internet can't point me towards the latest and greatest from Marvel DC Vertigo et al, what the hell use is it? 3. Books Libraries! Who knew? Most recent brilliant loan, Bossy Pants by Tina Fey, also Charity Shops, where I found How to Be a Woman by Caitlin Moran for less than a pound. Both of these books, incidentally, are essential reading for any nerdy mother. 
Also, in a world where charity shops exist, not to mention Amazon's second-hand sales, it's possible to flesh out the most specific literary back catalogue for not very much money at all. New stuff might be a bit more tricky to get hold of, as cover prices continue to rise, but the Kindle versions can usually be had for slightly less. Speaking of Kindle, most classics are available for free. I don't think even my mother, who might be described by Charles Dickens as somewhat thrifty, could argue with that. I've chosen these particular media because they combine well with being out of the house. Films and TV series are a bit trickier to fit into a lunch break. Plus, it would mean having to have them on iTunes, the price of which can be quite astronomical sometimes. But I'm hoping that small goals will prove more easily achievable, and that by having a few casual geeky things to be able to talk to the community about, a community I love being part of, I will eventually gain enough momentum to get back into the deep and involved narratives I've always found so much enjoyment in. Who knows? I may even finish L.A. Noir. Progression on from the article itself, which sort of centred around. Well, I think you're going to play it on the, uh, the audio anyway, aren't you? But um, moving on from that, I'm sure anybody who was following it with interest will be pleased to know that I have now massively expanded my investment in Plants vs Zombies. I've accumulated all of the mini games. My Zen garden is coming on nicely, um, and <laughs> yeah, I, I am actually finding more time to pick up small things here and there which was what I said I, I wanted to, to focus on and you know rather than just whinging about the fact that I didn't have big chunks of time actually make something of the small chunks. This last one is by me but it follows on from two text articles. The first was entitled Regenerative Health is Killing First Person Shooters written by Chris Hartnup originally for his blog Antihero Gaming. It garnered rather a lot of internet response and I was very happy to reprint it and get the community discussing and discuss it you did en masse in the forums. One member of the forum, Snakey Dave, known in reality as David Merritt, actually requested a place on the Freelancers Guild using a response article as an example of his work. And I liked it so much that it became his first piece, and it was entitled Regenerative Health is Not Killing First-Person Shooters. The argument for and against brought into play the notion that health packs might be more realistic and the removal of them changed the nature of shooters, whether for better or worse, and that shields had made combat completely different to how it used to be. My third instalment is entitled, uh, well, have a listen. Regenerative health is making the developers of first-person shooters complacent and in turn making the players complacent. Some headway needs to be made in favour of realism, which may serve to make the games themselves more exciting and or thought-provoking. Regenerative health gives the illusion of lack of permanent damage, if you can get cover from a firefight. Medkits make a player go hunting for magical pickups that will allow them to take a bullet in the head to survive. The flip side being that if after an age of fruitless backtracking no kit can be found, a graze to the shin could be fatal to a weakened player. Both of these systems have their strengths and weaknesses, but the former system, first brought to attention in 2001's Halo Combat Evolved, has been the norm for the second decade of FPS popularity, because it makes for a quicker, smoother experience, bouncing between skirmishes equipped with everything you need to survive. However, this original Halo experience still retained the med pack serving as a transitionary halfway house, which has rarely been examined and repeated as a strong and balanced combination of the two styles. Now, my suggestion to developers as a means of moving forward needs to be implemented in a single game extremely well in order to encourage future teams to follow suit. 
It's an imperfect system and just as flawed as the first two, but may serve to make this first title a genuinely interesting take on combat. The inspiration comes from several elements of the 1997 N64 classic, GoldenEye, as well as Far Cry 2 and Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. If you remember, in GoldenEye, shooting the enemies in different parts of their bodies made them react differently. The leg made them hop in pain, the hand made them clutch their limb, and their groin made them bend double. They would lurch backwards in surprise at chest shots, and their craniums would snap to the side with a successful headshot, made all the more interesting if they were wearing a metal helmet which would deflect the bullet and leave a satisfying dent. It brought out the sadistic side of my teenage self, and I would spend hours just toying with the guards in our Soviet playground with my silenced PP-7. Today, an alarming amount of shooters position the enemies as bullet sponges who can simply carry on moving as you fill their bodies with lead like the goddamn Terminator until you hit that specific damage limit, at which point they drop to the ground and are instantly forgotten. However... For a contemporary story with a different tone, imagine if every shot had a significant and lasting effect on every enemy, with comedy entirely removed and the horrors of what a bullet can actually do to the human body set firmly in place. See the movie Three Kings to understand how horrible sepsis from a gut wound can be. Throw a man in with his unit of named and limited soldiers and pitch him against a foe just as fragile and just as determined to succeed. I'm talking here about humanising the NPCs we blast to death in their millions every day. A shot to the leg and they should be down, unable to walk but still able to shoot. One to the arm and their shooting with a two-handed weapon is impaired but they can pull out their pistol and start up with their last few grenades, making them potentially more dangerous in their panic to survive. Do away with that infernal shooting gallery mechanic of cover, two, three, four, shoot, two, three, four, cover, two, three, four. We've done it enough times to never have to do that again. That mechanic makes them subhuman, one routine lines of code. If they know where you are, they should keep themselves as protected as possible and figure out a way to get round to you with flanking or flush you out in some other way. Like Goldeneye, you should start with body armour that degrades in different areas with each shot. Recovering and donning fresh armour, either from caches or downed opponents, should be a possible but time-consuming and nerve-wracking process. You should, of course, be able to treat minor wounds in a manner somewhere between Far Cry 2 and Snake Eater, but morphine, if applied at all, should not restore energy. In fact, too much morphine would be likely to bring you closer to death and impair your vision and movements. It is, after all, refined government-issue heroin. Removal of bullets and shrapnel are a must, as are bandaging and field stitching. The important thing is that every wound should matter. And those red barrels? The enemy needs to be aiming for them when you're nearby as well. At the moment, those only explode when a bullet goes wild. They're a vital tactical option and need to be taken by both sides. If they take one to the chest, their comrades need to be rescuing them, dragging them to safety and attempting to keep them alive, not for the continuation of the fight, but because these enemies have to care about one another. If you begin to realise that the men you're fighting are just as much of a solid unit as your own, rather than ever-repeating solo agents, then it will genuinely change the way you feel about each fight. Because imagine when all of this injury-based calamity is turned around, your left leg is taken out and you have to drag yourself to cover, impaired and slow, for the rest of the section. A computer-controlled medic on your team removes the bullet and bandages you up, all the while the enemy is closing in. You clutch your rifle to your chest, keeping watch in the periphery as the sounds of defeat draw nearer. Imagine the fear. Imagine the look of alarm in the eyes of a young soldier from the opposing force as he rounds the corner and you end his life abruptly with a hasty shot to the throat. 
Imagine his teammates calling his name and cursing yours as he bleeds out in front of you. Imagine the gravity of every kill. All this sounds distinctly ungamelike and is no doubt making people very uncomfortable. If so, good, because I am uncomfortable with the tidal wave of shooters that pitch you over and over and over again up against Middle Eastern, Russian, German and Japanese soldiers all screaming in foreign tongues and all simply fodder for your shooting. Paper thin images to bullseye. War is not a roller coaster. It's not a ride or an experience that anybody sane would want to share. It is a part of our nature, our culture and our history, and it absolutely should be explored in games. But to suggest that if a bullet hits you in the shoulder you will be fine in a few moments simply from waiting out the trauma, or from trampling over a box of bandages and painkillers, is both a grotesque twisting of the laws of physics and a means to stop the player thinking too hard about the genuine impact of what you and these other men are doing to each other. What I may have just pitched could be a game that will sell 300 copies. It could be so power and memory intensive that only top of the line PCs can handle so many variables and so many bullets. It may be flawed in other ways, so only this concept within the gameplay is successful. It could be the FPS equivalent of Demon's Souls, proving so difficult to get through both physically and emotionally that only the hardest of the hard see the close. But the idea would be out there. It would be unlike the shooters of the 20th or 21st century so far, and if the mechanics get refined, it's possible that the cold-hearted, gun-farming multiplayer rehashed every Christmas could be surpassed. Killjoy! One more thing before you guys pimp your shows. Um, I just started doing volunteer work for a uh, local college radio station, which is pretty interesting. I've not talked about it on my own podcast before. I mentioned it on Twitter a few times, and I talked about it briefly on uh, Game Overcast, which I was just on. I haven't got a show yet, but I've been on a couple of people's shows as a guest. So uh, yeah, it's called Siren FM. It is in the Lincoln area and broadcasts within a very uh, tight circle there. It's local radio. So if you are in the Lincoln area, brilliant. Just watch my Twitter and I'll let you know. But indeed, you can get it on the internet as well. So uh, I will let you guys know via Twitter when I'm going to be on, like an hour or two in advance. And if you want to jump to the uh, website that I'll give you a link to, you can listen live and hear me fuck up on air. I'm actually interested to know uh, how it contrasts between podcasting, because uh, with Digital Gonzo, you kind of have free reign to say whatever you want. Mm. But on a public radio station, of course, you have to keep it PG, and mm. you don't want to say anything... Uh, frankly, you have to keep it you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I'm and just you can't say anything controversial, and you can't uh, you can't even say I was eating at McDonald's the other day. You have to say I was eating at a restaurant the other day. 
Or really? someone says, I was eating at McDonald's the other day, you've got to cut in and say, one of the many fine restaurants available in uh, Lincoln, you actually have to counter it with a balanced viewpoint so that we're not favouring one restaurant over the other, even if it happens to be pertinent to the story. Which is interesting. Okay. Neil Taylor will strange. probably know everything about this already. I'll talk to him about it soon, but uh, yeah. He does the same thing in Nottingham. That, that strikes me as slightly odd that you just need to... Oh, and uh, there are other places you can eat as well. There's, uh, <laughs> it, it's like, uh, for example, I want to uh, talk to people in game to get their public's viewpoints on games because it's a really good sort of hotspot for people. And I could phone game and say, look, could I talk to some people in your store as long as I'm not bothering them if they want to come over and speak to me and, uh, you know, put them on uh, Siren FM for local radio. But the problem is we wouldn't be allowed to pimp game. We'd just be able to say, we're in a popular game store in Lincoln, so there's nothing in it for them to say yes, which is interesting. Also, most of the stuff that's on there is is mostly factual, and I'm one of the only people who's pitching entertainment stuff, so uh, it's it's interesting. But it's great fun, and it's uh, it's, it's important to learn all of these uh, various skills to, to actually apply what I've learned already to that, and then learn from that how to actually work in radio. Have you accidentally sweared yet? Have I sweared? No. It's not too difficult not to swear. I have laughed inappropriately when I was not supposed to. (laughs) And I have uh, talked over someone when you're supposed to hold up your hand to talk on that particular show. Ah. It's like a talking stick. But I've submitted uh, various show formats and show ideas. One of the things actually involves me doing some pre-recording at home and uh, and then submitting that piece to them to play at some point. Uh, so it's quite feasible that I could actually record stuff with you guys from the community. In fact, yeah, one of the things I actually want to talk about is parents playing games with their kids. And um, now I can't just talk to gamers and, and people who are hardcore about it because it's not going to be a balanced viewpoint, is it? But if there are people on the forum who do actually play video games with their kids, I would like to interview you. So if you want to let me know, then uh, we can arrange something like that. We'll do some Vox Pops, and uh, I can accumulate that for a show. If you want to be on Siren FM, 107.3. This next bit is actually taken from a show that aired on Siren FM the day after recording this episode of Gonzo. It's called No Adults Allowed, and the Tuesday show's host, George Patchett, tried so hard to keep the show focused and on track, making himself the perfect straight man for my more chaotic approach. Does anybody know what that song's called? It's called Bull and Blitz by The Sweet. Is it? Yeah. I might get that on uh, my musical device, because I quite like that song. Get Blockbuster as well. Blockbuster? Cool. Also fantastic. Uh, someone actually said on my tw- Twitter feed, is it wrong of me to feel hungry after your mention of an egg log? Yes. Um, I feel quite hungry, actually. <laughs> hungry for egg log? Yes. <laughs> Wash down with some eggnog, it being Christmas nearly. Yeah. I don't know what eggnog is. It's nog with lots of added extra egg. That makes perfect sense. Moving on to our news section. What weird and wacky news have we got today, Alex? We've got how eggnog is made. Do we? Yeah, actually I can find out for you if you want. Um, Are we going to talk about this yeast extract? Yes. Beyond what I've already painted as a picture for the public? 
Um, yes, I think they need a little bit more detail. <clears throat> 20 ton Marmite spill blocks M1 motorway. Oops. A large-scale cleanup operation was underway after a tanker carrying more than 20 tons of yeast extract believed to be marmite overturned on a busy motorway. That's pretty much all it says here, really. I'd just like to point out that nobody was injured in this accident. So we're not making fun of anybody's injuries or anything? No, we're just making fun of the fact that somebody spilled a lot of marmite on a road. I'm imagining a marmite slick at this point. I don't like Marmite. Would cars get stuck I in do. it if they drove through, it's, or is it not It certainly enough? would not be advisable, especially with all the broken jars, unless it was just an, an enormous, like a petrol tanker, but full of Marmite, which they were just then going to squeeze into the jars one at a time. Either that, or we've just got the really wrong end of it, and it's just the, the, the Marmite, you know, the containers are all over the road as opposed to the actual Marmite. Oh, yeah, that wouldn't be good, if it's glass as well. Yeah. No, I didn't. It's probably a lot less funny than it sounds. Well, no, if it's a tanker, it will contain just lots of marmite. Would it? it? If it was directed by Michael Bay, would it still explode? Showering the periphery with yeast extract. Delicious yeast extract. Well, somebody pointed out to me earlier, I can't remember if it was you, that there was something in the road that's also in bread, therefore making it a piece of toast. Yeah. Now, hang on, there was some, there was something or there was someone in the road that was also inbred? No, there's something. There was um, something, some ingredient in the road. Gav, stop distracting me. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really distracting. Uh, just so you know, folks, it's uh, milk and or cream, sugar, beaten eggs uh, and uh, liquor, brandy, rum, moonshine or whiskey. It's a different marmite. Yeah, in the no, road? This is eggnog. Oh, right. Oh, that's eggnog. Mm. You oh. can make it in a bathtub if you've got enough ingredients. In a bathtub? Or in a, a petrol-sized I don't recommend with. this. I don't think anybody's parents would be very happy if you try to make eggnog in Yeah, but bath. this could go either way. They, they could be really, really happy or really, really unhappy about it, depending on which way you look at it. Well, what... As long what? as you don't actually bathe in it. Yeah. Yeah. And then add the nutmeg. We shall continue this discussion after a little bit of Ollie Murs. Siren 107.3 FM. Lincoln's first community radio station. Okay, enough pimping from me on my show. You guys. Uh, Leah, do you want to go first with GamerDork? Sure. Uh, I recently took over uh, the GamerDork podcast, which is now on Spong.com, um, but it can also be found at GamerDork.net. And um, so we are... We have two episodes out right now, the second of which um, Alex is is my uh, co-host on. Uh, I have a kind of a pool of co-hosts uh, that, that uh, eventually will be rotated in between, so um, can watch out for those. The, the schedule's still getting hashed out a little bit, but I believe eventually we are going to have ups, new episodes up on Fridays. Um, so check us out on iTunes or on uh, GamerDork.net or at Spong.com. Uh, who else is on the, uh, the the proposed roster for other co-hosts? Uh, well, right now it is um, Elaine, my uh, my 
co-host from some other podcast, and uh, also have uh, Nick Nicola from Gamehounds and uh, Dan Ilson, who you just heard a uh, an audio article from as well. So got five five whole people who did not tell me to fuck off when I asked them to be on my show. Josh, did you get a warm tingly feeling when you finally had the uh, the show? It was like digital cowboys and some of a castle had melded together in this weird concoction. It was it was really interesting. No, uh, seriously, um, I'm really happy that you're the uh, host of uh, Gamer Dot now, Leah. It's um, I'll be honest, um, I've been juggling loads of podcasts and I kind of uh, stopped listening to Gamer Dork, but now I'm a dedicated fan. Oh, well, thank you. Send listener mail. <laughs> listener mail! Yes. I've got to do that. That's yeah. re-rolled at GamerDork.net. <laughs> and if they want to get in touch with you and check out the stuff you've been doing, Josh, where can you be found? Um, I, uh, you can find me on caneandrince.com. Uh, Cane and Rinse is a website where you can find articles about games and games culture. Uh, we also have a podcast that focuses on mainly uh, examining a single or a couple of games and examining them in extreme detail. Um, we're not we're not talking about the latest and newest uh, games. We We'll go back to games of yesteryear and uh, examine them to their fullest. Uh, we just released the uh, Dead Space uh, episode, which is worth a listen. Uh, I'm on it, so you definitely want to listen to that. Uh, and also, I write for you on uh, Gonzo Planet. Yes, uh, indeed. There is a, a, one of your articles regarding video game movies coming up in the next few days. Yeah, so check that out. And Sharon, where can we find you if we want to hear from you? Uh, mostly Twitter. Um, I am uh, Kai Boxer, C-A-I underscore Boxer, uh, but also on Gonzo Planet, where I currently have one article and I'm working on more. And that is all from Digital Gonzo episode 50. Once again, if you love the show, then show the love. iTunes reviews will ensure that many more listeners come to the community and jump on the forum to check out what some really lovely, interesting people are talking about. I'd like to extend a thank you to Grim Order 66 for your iTunes review, in which he closes with, and this is a direct quote, the trails get happier, which is very reassuring. And check out Gonzo Planet on a daily basis to get impassioned audio, text, and video content from the Freelancers Guild. Coming up on Gonzo, a double-bill movie review for the 2009 performance capture version of A Christmas Carol, along with Muppets Christmas Carol. That's my favorite Christmas movie ever. (laughs) A New Year's quiz show. A show on Halo Combat Evolved. A show on The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. And my first major project for 2012 will be a series of not four, but eight movie reviews for the entire Harry Potter series. So we will see you for those. You've been listening to Digital Gonzo and the Omnibus edition of Gonzo Planet Volume 1. Love, hate, but most of all, think. I can be an asshole of the grandest kind. I can be like it's going out of style I can be the moodiest baby And you've never met anyone who's as negative as I am sometimes I am the wisest woman